You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I don't know if you call it credential bias or what, but this idea that some people are experts when, in fact... What we're calling the experts are the scientists and not necessarily the inventors. Like we see this with this recent pandemic that, oh, we need to trust the mathematical models of the experts. And it turns out every single one of those models is wrong. But still, every step of the way, people say, I think I'm going to leave this to the experts. Like there's, you were sort of shut down if you were an uncredentialed skeptic. I, I think, well, first of all, you have to understand that science and technology involves disagreement. You're going to have different people with different ideas about how to interpret data and what the data says, etc., etc. And where you get truth is from the clash between ideas. That's one important thing. But the second thing is, yes, of course, there is such a thing as expertise. I'm not here to say I want my bridge uh, that I drive over built by five-year-olds. You know, the fact that the bridge doesn't fall down is because someone has expertise. But that doesn't mean that there is such a thing as an expert on the future. And I think this is the really important distinction that one needs to make. Uh, And this is where we're getting into trouble with the modeling of the epidemic at the moment, is we're supposing that there are people who are experts at forecasting. And the evidence is that people are terrible at forecasting. A, most of forecasts are not much better than chance and B, the more expert you are the worse you are at forecasting Uh, At the same time you do need certain qualities I think to be an innovator which you point out so what actually separates the true innovators from the also-rans So happy to have Matt Ridley on uh, his most recent book, How Innovation Works, we'll be talking about. But Matt, I also want you to know that your prior two or your most recent two books, The Rational Optimist and The Evolution of Everything, have had a huge impact on my life. So welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. That's very interesting for me and uh, great to be on the show. Yeah, I I don't know if you realize, like, on the one hand, you know, they're not like, obviously, these aren't self-help books. You wouldn't expect someone to say, oh, this has changed my life, these books. But they really have. They've actually helped me come up with ideas. They've helped me actually come up with ideas that have made me significant amounts of money. So, um, and I've been, one way or the other, I think I've been reaching out to get you on. I don't know how I've been reaching out, but I've had producers try to reach you. 
for probably about six years to get you on the podcast. Well, I'm so, so sorry. I'm, no, I no, no, it's not. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Maybe the producers have been horrible. I have no idea what, what's what's been happening. It's probably because I've been in a, a, a head down trying to write a book mode for some yes. of that time and various other things. And, and I actually, I really wasn't doing much of this kind of thing until very recently, but it's lockdown that's broken the dam for me and enabled me to uh, to start doing a lot more podcasting. Well, we'll talk about lockdown and innovation in a second, but, um, uh, you know, I, I do want to ask you, like, so, you know, the, how innovation works is, you know, such an interesting perspective. You talk about some things which have been kind of in the knowledge before, which is the idea that, you know, inventions and innovations sometimes occur all over the world simultaneously. And that at first was a surprise to people and now uh, is a little bit more understood. But then you talk about just in general, the, the conditions for how innovation takes place in a society, in an individual. And you, you talk about so many different areas where innovation you know, has sprouted up in different centuries over the past Two million years. So, but particularly, of course, in the past two centuries. But I, I was fascinated in the beginning of the book with your description of of how the industrial revolution really started with this kind of almost, uh, you know, this this new interaction between heat and work. And I like how you described it. Well, yeah, I think this is a really important insight, um, and not not just because, as you find out in one of the chapters, one of my ancestors seems to have played a small part in it. Right. Um, but because uh, it it occurred to me a long time ago that, that 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 really is what the industrial revolution is all about. It's linking the world of heat with the world of work. Um, we had two forms of energy before then. We had heat from wood and coal, and we had work from wind and water and. Uh, human power and animal power. So um, we had uh, these two different kinds of, of, of harnessing energy, but there was no connection between them. You couldn't use heat to do work and you couldn't do use work to make heat, at least not in any significant well, can, way. Can I ask you about that? Like, So for instance, if your work was to um, clear a forest, you could use heat or human power for that. I'm just asking. Yeah, that's a good point. You mean you set fire to the forest and that way you get rid of the... That's true. Yep, no, that's that's a good example. It's a different kind of work. It doesn't push anything. Um, and also, if you fire a cannon, you're using heat or at least pressure to uh, to do the work of sending a cannonball through the air. I guess that that's true too. So yeah, there are a few links, but not many <laughs> between right. heat and work. And then along comes the steam engine. And that's what... The steam, the steam engine is a device for turning heat into work. Um, and uh, the physicists have a slightly definition of the word work, which can confuse this, but I think you and I know what we mean by work, moving something, you know, in, in this case, turning something or, right. or whatever, turning a pump uh, in the case of the first steam engines. The first steam engines were used to pump water out of coal mines to make it easier to, to mine coal. Um, and the point about that is it, it, it un it tapped into almost limitless quantities of energy. It gave us energy on a scale we hadn't had before. In the medieval world, if if you you know if you grew a crop of corn, that could feed you and your animals to the point where you could do the work of replanting another crop of crop of corn. And if you're lucky, uh, you could hand a bit over to the church or the the landlord um, for him to build a castle or or a cathedral with. 
Uh, and that's sort of where the energy was coming from to build ca castles and cathedrals, which are improbable structures. Okay, they don't come about by chance. You know, they. they and this is this is the, the the insight I have in the first chapter of the book, which I got from this guy John Constable. That actually, most of what we create in the world are improbable structures. We create improbable combinations of atoms. This conversation is an improbable thing. We're saying um, we're saying non-random things to each other. And that's improbability. That's the opposite of entropy. Um, and we all know that to reverse entropy on a local scale, you need to use energy. So the more energy you put into the system, the more improbability you can create, the more complexity, structure, function, all these different kinds of things. And that's sort of what the, the Industrial Revolution starts to be, is a, is a great flowering of uh, the creation of complexity and sophistication and, and, and of course, the ability to supply human needs along the way. And so I think it's quite central to start with energy, to start with energy innovations and understand how they have powered all the other innovations that we've taken for granted ever since. Yeah, so, so for instance, the steam engine allowed for all sorts of devices that you know, led to this great innovation, you know, all of these nonstop innovations in transportation, in harvesting fields, which in turn led to you know, particularly with transportation, when you're bringing people closer, so I could take a plane now to see you, or I could use Zoom to see you, and and so on. Now we're applying energy to that. We could our, our ideas get more dense. Your ideas are closely related to my ideas, and now new ideas could develop, and and innovation starts to happen at a, a more frequent pace because more energy has entered the system. Yeah, so that puts me at the materialist end of the spectrum of arguments about what the Industrial Revolution was all about. And I've had arguments with that wonderful uh, economic historian, Deirdre McCloskey, um, about this, because she says, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a psychological, a cultural switch that, that kicks off the Industrial Revolution. It's nothing to do with energy and coal and things like that. It's, it's that we start to value innovation as a goal in itself. We start to encourage people to do it. And I'm saying, yeah, there's an element of that, but I'm not sure that's the chicken. I think that, I mean, I'm not sure that's the egg. I think it might be the chicken. You get the point, you know, yes. both chickens and eggs <laughs> yeah. uh, give rise to each other. So it, it um, actually, they don't. Somebody said, an evolutionary biologist said to me years ago, you know, that's the dumbest question ever, which came first, the chicken and the egg? Of course the egg came first because reptiles lay eggs. <laughs> oh yeah. And then, so you're saying they evolved ultimately it mute. There was one egg too many that hit a tipping point, and it cracked open into a chicken. Yeah, it wasn't, of course, quite that sudden, uh, but yeah, in principle, yes. <laughs> I should mention you've written several books about uh, essentially genetics and evolution and the genome and so on. So this is a, a natural feel to you, and then and then your writing kind of evolved into <laughs> writing not only about evolution but the evolution of everything, not just biology, and then, and then the evolution of ideas, which led to, you know, your, your basically these last three books. That's right. And to some extent, these three books, The Rational Optimist, Evolution of Everything, and uh, How Innovation Works, I think are a trilogy. Um, they're, about, uh, they're about this whole concept of a sort of bottom-up process by which uh, ideas meet other ideas, have baby ideas, and those ideas change the world. Uh, and they, on the whole, change it for the better. That's why I'm a 
rational optimist because we keep the good ideas and discard the bad ones. Um, and so the, there's, a, there's an inexorable, inevitable uh, sort of tendency that's bubbling up from below in society uh, that changes the world. And something like the internet comes about not because one or two clever people ordain that it's going to come about or plan that it's going to come up, but because it's an, it's an almost unstoppable outcome of the fact that once we'd networked computers, it was inevitable that, they would, that people would use them to, to create something like the internet. And it's probably very difficult to switch it off, to unstop it, to stop it or to go back. To stop innovation in general. To stop innovation in general, although I do make the point in the book that I think we are uh, we are creating an innovation famine. We're not encouraging innovation as much as we should be, and we're slowing it down in too many areas. And the pandemic is a good uh, example of this because if we had uh, accelerated innovation in vaccine development, for example, we wouldn't be in the mess we are today with attempts to shut down a disease using pretty medieval measures, that is to say, quarantines and closing the theatres and things like that. Um, so uh, I don't think we've done enough innovation. I don't think we're doing innovation fast enough. I think innovation isn't going faster and faster all the time. But there are areas like digital technologies where it has gone very fast recently and where it probably wasn't possible to prevent it uh, finding its own uh, rhythm and routine and, and pace. But sometimes uh, the innovation will kind of skip to another industry. It'll, like like for 100 years, it was going down the route of faster and faster transportation. So you mentioned like, for instance, in your grandparents' lifetimes, they've gone from horses to cars, to faster cars, to, to planes, to rockets. And I've, I've often wondered this. When I go, let's say, across the Atlantic on a, on a plane, I'm basically going the same speed now that they went during World War II or right afterwards, during, during the 1950s. Why do you think, I mean, they did get a little faster for a while with the Concorde, but that's, as you mentioned, is gone. Why do you think we haven't kept going faster across the Atlantic? I've always wondered this. I'm so disappointed yeah. in society for not making it a one-hour trip. You're quite right. I think it's, it's, it's a completely fascinating topic. Um, and it's not what they expected. If you go back to the 1950s and look at what people are saying about the future, they all say by the year 2000, we're going to be using supersonic planes, we're going to be doing routine space travel, we're going to have personal gyrocopters to skip around. The mailman is going to deliver old-fashioned letters, but he's going to deliver them with a rocket strap to his back. I've got a picture of that actually happening uh, as a prediction from the 1950s. Um, Instead of which, we saw enormous changes in communication and computing, but very little change in, in transport, at least in speed. In fact, that plane you cross the Atlantic in today is slightly slower than a Boeing 707 was in the 1960s and 70s because it's designed to be slower because uh, fuel is a bit more expensive and they don't want to burn so much fuel. And that, of course, is the, the limit we've come up against, is the, is the cost of energy. The, the, fast, the Concorde-type speeds require very cheap fuel. Uh, because on, you don't get uh, it, it, you get a diminishing return effect from fuel unless you skip into space, which of course is the obvious thing to do. And why we haven't done that for uh, transcontinental flights, I don't really know. Uh, I mean, it's it's possible that it's because the military has kept a monopoly on that kind of thing. We'll see whether the likes of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos can break through that um, ceiling, as it were. Uh, and get us onto uh, space hopping flights. Um, 
But it really is very striking how disappointing innovation in transport has been in my lifetime compared with innovation in computing and communication. Well, you mentioned how uh, Peter Thiel says, we used to innovate with atoms and now we innovate with bits, which is more on the communications information side of things. What do you think? It seems like where innovation leapfrogs into another industry when regulation blocks it out. So once all the airspace became regulated, uh, okay, where can we go now? Well, they don't know anything. The government doesn't know anything about computers and information yet. So we'll leapfrog into that. Yeah, I, I mean, one shouldn't, of course, argue that there's been no innovation in transport because one of the things I discuss in the book is the incredible evolution in transport safety of the last 50 years. Your chances of dying in a plane crash are unbelievably low compared with what they were in the 1960s. Um, you know, we got through an entire year in 2018 without a single commercial jetliner crashing. That had never happened before. Um and despite millions and millions and millions of flights. Um, so, uh, the, and, and you can see how that's happened. There's incremental changes in safety procedures and practices and technologies that, that have, have, have reached that. Uh, so, so there have been changes. But Peter Thiel is right that in the last decade or two, when you say the word innovation, the idea that leaps into your head is digital innovation. It's the internet, it's... It's uh, technology of that kind. It's, it's, it's software. It's virtual stuff. It's not atoms. It's not big new machines. I mean, sure, there have been a few of those, and mobile phones are, after all, machines, and so are laptops and things like that. But, but the, you know, the, the real innovation has gone digital. And he says the reason for that is because digital innovation has been permissionless. You don't need a permit to do it. You can just go ahead and do it. There's no... There's no licensing authority that you have to go along and say, look, I wish to develop a new program for communicating uh, virtual online meetings in case there's a pandemic. Um, uh, may I have permission to work in this area? Whereas if you want to change something biological or something physical or develop a new kind of material uh, or develop a new device, a new medical device that could uh, test for viruses during a pandemic, for example, you have to get permission. Uh, and actually, regulators are extraordinarily slow at giving permission. The problem is not that they say no, but that they take an awful long time to say yes. Uh, and that has deterred innovation uh, in those areas and on the whole redirected the energy of entrepreneurs into uh, the digital field. It was helped by the fact that during the Clinton administration, uh, a, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act was passed which was a very permissive piece of legislation that actually unleashed e-commerce by basically saying you're not responsible for whatever appears on your site, uh, you're a platform, not a publisher, therefore go ahead, do what you like online. It's, it's an extraordinary piece of legislation in some ways, very, very successful in unleashing all the e-commerce that we deal with every day, but also unleashing a certain you know, type of political and news media problem that we have to deal with as a result. And so th throughout, though, it's interesting how you do need innovators. On the one hand, it, like you were saying in the book, and like we were talking about just now, if an innovation is going to happen, it's going to happen. It's sort of an, a natural evolution that 20-some people invented the light bulb all around the world at the same time. Uh, many people invented the steam engine. Many people invented 
you know, the car, the airplane, and so on. Uh, at the same time, you do need certain qualities, I think, to be an innovator, which you point out. And, and a great example is, is the airplane where you have the Wright brothers on one hand, they basically owned a bicycle shop in Dayton, Ohio, and you have Samuel Langley on the other hand, who was massively funded by the government and you know, was considered an airplane expert, and he just couldn't get a plane going, and the Wright brothers did. So what, what actually separates the true innovators from the also-rans? Um, that example, Samuel Langley versus the Wright brothers, is, is as good a one as you can get for how to do innovation well and how to do it badly. Uh, you have, on the one hand, a, a grandee guy who thinks he can uh, build a flying machine from scratch in one go without testing my, many of the parts before he does so, um, uh, putting it all together in one go in secret. That's that's one of the key points. Uh, and does so without uh, sharing his ideas with lots of other people. Uh, and then he launches it all with a big harouche in front of a lot of people using a lot of government money, uh, and it's a disaster. And the thing goes up into the air and goes straight down into the water. And 10 days later, uh, this is 1903, uh, in on an island off North Carolina, you have two bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, who get a machine into the air, a powered machine for the first time. And they've done everything right. First of all, they've communicated with as many people as possible lots of pioneers of gliders to try and understand the flight. They've studied birds in obsessively for hours on end to try and see what birds are doing to steer through the air. They've cracked little problems like how to steer in the air, which wasn't obvious at all. Um, they've done so with gliders. Um, they've cracked the problem of the exact curvature of the wing to give you the best ratio for lift. Uh, and they were misled, actually, by some numbers that, that an expert gave them, which turned out to be wrong, and they had to rediscover the right number. Um, uh, and they've done endless experiments, experiments with gliders, experiments in wind tunnels, experiments with parts of aeroplanes, and they've left the easy bit to the last, which is to add an engine to the aeroplane. Um, they say that's the easy bit because, well, you know, all it's got to do is provide power. Everything else is is is, is the difficult bit. So... These are very good examples of how to do it. Um, uh, uh, share ideas, network your, the, the solution, break it down into incremental steps, don't try and do it all at once, um, uh, and do a huge amount of trial and error. And I think those are the characteristics of the great inventors, the great innovators that I write about in my book. People like Thomas Edison were obsessed with experimentation. You know, he, he didn't pretend to be a genius. He just tried a thousand different ways till he found the right way. Um, uh, and um, uh, that lesson comes out very clearly from most of the stories I tell. Every now and then you find an exception, you know, somebody who's just so clever and goes straight to the heart of, of the problem, but, but it's pretty rare. Like, like what's an example there where, they, where someone stands out? Um, well, let me think, actually. Uh, now, now I mention it. I mean, I was... Uh, Maybe I was Einstein sort of, a little bit? Yes, I mean, I think you know, but 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 Einstein's coming up with something uh, sort of theoretical, uh, right. and uh, to actually um, do an innovation that is a, that is a sort of practical thing, but but you do it with one giant leap. I mean, Marconi is quite an interesting case because although he does a lot of experimentation, particularly to improve it, he does take a scientific idea, the idea of 
electromagnetic waves out of the scientific literature where people think it has no practical application. And he said, you know, I'm jolly well going to build something that uses this to communicate uh, through the air. Um, and uh, so, yeah, but I don't think he even counts as that. I don't think I can think of a good example of somebody who doesn't use trial and error and incremental improvement to do innovation. This, this, this could take us in two directions. So I want to explore both. One is, what, what would you say is the characteristic of a good experiment? Because I think this applies not only to innovation of physical devices, but even of business models or ideas for a book or basically anything is, is worthwhile of experimentation before you commit to fully coming up with a finished product. Yeah, well, um, I suspect that it's important to bear in mind Karl Popper's insight that the way science advances is by attempting to falsify its own hypotheses. It doesn't advance by attempting to support the hypothesis, but attempting to knock it down. And it's if you fail to knock it down that you should increase your strength in your hypothesis, um, strength of belief. Um, and so scientists are human beings, so are technologists and engineers. And if you have a hunch that, that you've worked out how the world works in some respect, and you want to prove that you're right, then the answer is not to look for confirmation, but to look for disconfirmation. Because, um, so, and this is called confirmation bias. We all, we all, we all go off, we, we, we go out saying, I've got this idea and I think it's right and I found this bit of evidence for it and that bit of evidence for it and this bit of evidence. Ah, but have you checked to see if you can find a bit of evidence against it? And if you can't, then that's much more powerful. So the, the phrase confirmation bias was coined in the 1960s by a psychologist named Peter Wason. Um, and he, he gave the following rather counterintuitive example. He said, I'm going to give you three numbers, two, four, six. And uh, I'm going to tell you that the, uh, and I want you to, to, to tell me what the next three numbers are. And uh, then from that, work out what rule I'm uh, following. And so most people will then say, 8, 10, 12. And he says, yep, they follow the same, they follow my rule. So, so, they, so, so he said, what's my rule? Well, your rule is you're adding two each time. He says, nope, that isn't my rule. It happens. My rule is each number must be bigger than the previous number. <laughs> if you'd said 7, 8, 9, you'd have discovered that. That's funny. <laughs> because it's, it's quite a nice example. It, sort of, it's, it takes you by surprise when you think it through. And so I think that that's what a great experiment involves, is, is, is doing the thing that would destroy your beautiful theory with an ugly fact if it came out one way, having the courage to do that. Uh, and I, I'm just trying to think what... In, in, the, um, in the development of nuclear weapons, there, there was a very key question, which was how big a piece of nuclear material you needed at critical mass to um, achieve an explosion. And uh, a, a certain piece of evidence persuaded, I think it was Bohr early on, that it was a very, very large quantity. You know, you need a, a building full of material. So there's no way you can make a portable bomb uh, out of this. And everybody was happy with that conclusion for several years in the late 1930s. And it's only when 
Otto Frisch and Rudolf Piles in Birmingham run some calculations later based on uh, some little tweaks they've done to the theory. They say, you know what? This isn't right. You could, in theory, build something the size of a suitcase. Well, maybe not quite that small, but the size of a bomb that would go off. And they write a, a memo to the British government, which then the whole thing snowballs and eventually becomes the Manhattan Project in the United States. Um, so that, that's, a, that's an example of being open to your hypothesis being wrong. And and how did they experiment there? Because, and I I, mean, I don't know the answer at all. Like, it seems like the only way to experiment is to have a massive explosion. <laughs> Actually, that's a very good point. An awful lot of the experimentation is sort of is sort of virtual experimentation. In the case of the Manhattan Project, you know, it's it's calculations as to what would happen, and that's why the moment when they go down to New Mexico and explode the device. Uh, in at White Sands, New Mexico, is crucially important because there are there are a lot of possibilities. One is that it could not go off at all. Another is that it could go off with such a big bang that it destroys them and half of New Mexico as well. Uh, and in between, there's a lot of possibilities. And they have a sweepstake. The guys involved have a sweepstake on how big it's going to be, how many megatons. And I can't remember the answer, but uh, it was way higher than most of them expected. It wasn't that high. It wasn't as high as even the Hiroshima and Nagasaki ones that went off relatively soon after that because they'd done more experimentation. But uh, the range of, of guesses was huge between... So I, I think it was Zillard, it was uh, Teller or Zillard who had a, you know, a high guess and, and was pretty well right. Um, it wasn't higher than his guess, but it was nearly as high as his guess. Uh, so, um, yeah, even there you've got guesswork and experimentation and all that kind of stuff. It seems like like one quality of a good experiment is uh, very little downside and enormous upside. So for instance, when you have Langley versus the Wright brothers, Langley, his experiment was in front of a huge amount of people and he made a fool of himself because it didn't work. So it was huge downside. Whereas the Wright brothers, by incremental trial and error, kept the downside to a minimum until they were ready to really fly it around Paris. I think that's dead right. Fail gracefully, as someone put it, you know, or fail fail small so that you can succeed big. Yeah. Um, uh, keep keep keep. And yet, there's no point in in trying something so small that it doesn't affect your bottom line. You know, you've got to actually, uh, you know, people like Jeff Bezos would say you've got to gamble the company every now and then. Uh, and Bezos is famous for saying the reason we succeeded was because we tried a lot of things and an awful lot of them went wrong. Uh, and it's true. You could write the history of the Amazon company as a, uh, a series of disasters. And if, you, if a few other things had gone a different way, it would then stand as a sort of Enron-like story of catastrophe because it had done a whole bunch of things wrong. It bought a lot of other companies in the dot-com boom. Uh, it, it went into areas which didn't work. It, it over-promised and under-delivered. It uh, annoyed the stock market. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that, 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 that they did wrong. But they kept getting just enough right so that eventually they, the whole thing went extremely right. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. 
I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. 
ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Amazon's an interesting case. And this this dates back to um, your, your work in The Rational Optimist. Amazon's an interesting case where they combined, you know, the internet with bookstores, had IdeaSex and created this online bookstore. And then they figured, okay, this works. So we'll start combining other ideas like clothes and electronics and so on. And then they... Uh, I don't know how you would describe this in terms of the relationship of ideas, but uh, they they basically went meta. They said, okay, we have this entire infrastructure where we do enormous logistics and have enormous databases online. So let's rent out that infrastructure and call it Amazon Web Services, AWS, which is now a huge source of profits for them. So that's, that's an interesting way to innovate, which is to kind of uh, take an idea, scale it horizontally, and then scale it vertically. Mm-hmm. And and it's just all these different techniques for doing incremental innovation, you know. And one of them is the idea section you refer to in, in the Rational Optimist, and mm-hmm. and so on. Yeah, it's it's incremental, but it's also some bold leaps, and as you say, some sideways leaps, some serendipitous stuff. You know, they, they, they kind of stumbled on the fact that their rivals weren't spotting the opportunity of of web services to the same degree, and that they should jump into this field, um, uh, and uh, and you know and and. And that way made made a huge uh, success of it. I asked Bezos once why, how he kept a big company innovative, you know, because on the whole, big companies become very conservative. They don't like new ideas because they're too invested in existing ones. They do a Kodak or a Nokia and allow new technologies to come along and displace them. Um, and, and he said, well, you know, I have various means of making sure that we stay uh, nimble and maverick and uh, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they, it's famous two pizza rule, you know, never have a meeting that too big that you can't eat two pizzas uh, between all the people in the room. <laughs> that it needs oh, more I, than I two pizzas to feed, the, to feed the, the, the meeting. But the one that stuck in my mind best was when he said that there's a sort of reverse veto system operates in Amazon. So, if somewhere down fairly junior in the organization, somebody says, you know what, I've got this great idea. We could, uh, you know, combine space rockets with um, uh, Amazon Web Services and do a sort of uh, server on the moon, uh, you know, or something like I, I made that one up in about 10 seconds. Um, but actually, now I think about it, why not? <laughs> it's nice <laughs> it and be cool good. on the moon. <laughs> Plenty of solar power. Um, anyway, That's true. Um, so, so let's say I'm this guy and I've had this idea and I go to a meeting with my colleagues and my immediate boss and I say, here's how it would work, this is what it would cost, you know, da, da, da. And they all say, you are completely barking mad. You know, it costs far too much. It wouldn't work as well as you think. Uh, it wouldn't deliver any goods. It's a really stupid idea. And they, all of them say that except one of them, 
okay? You know, there's one guy in the room who says, I don't know, I think Ridley's onto something here. Just might work. Normally in a company, that guy would be outvoted. You know, sorry, forget it. We all think it's a bad idea. It's not going to happen. But in Amazon, apparently, as long as one guy sticks up for it on the jury, as it were, it's a bit like that movie, 12 Angry Men, you know, Henry Fonda um, says the guy is innocent. Um, As long as one guy stands up for it, then that level of management must refer the idea up to the next level of management where the same process happens. And that way, you know, someone like Jeff at the top of the tree gets to hear um, that Ridley's had this bright idea of putting um, uh, servers on the moon. uh, And he thinks, hmm, let's give that a go. So he's preventing the conservatism of committees from from, uh, getting in the way of new ideas. It seems like part of it, though, then, is there's one part of it, which is a knowledge of where does all the science combine to make this a good idea? So for instance, you mentioned if a server's on the moon, it has solar power, it's cooler. So you have all these energy savings. Putting So you know the kind of state of the art on servers and what they need and the science of what it means to be a server on the moon and so on. And then there's another side of it, which is there's a, a charisma side, which is you have to be able to pers- be persuasive enough so that if you're a junior person on the team, you can convince somebody one level higher to take a chance on you, and then he has to do that process and so on. So what would you say is the role of, of charisma in innovation? And, and if, I'm, if I want to be an innovator in life, how do, I, how do I create that charisma for myself? Um, that's a really good question, and it's one, not one I think I have a, a clear answer to. But from the stories I tell... Uh, in in my book about innovation, I probably wouldn't rate charisma all that highly. I mean, I I tell a couple of stories in the book about fantastically low-key individuals who achieved extraordinary things. Uh, Pearl Kendrick was a uh, bacteriologist who set out to develop a whooping cough vaccine and succeeded magnificently in a very short time in the 1930s and uh, never made a penny out of it, never sought any publicity, um, just worked really hard. You know, there's, uh, I don't, I'm not saying she was necessarily a charisma-free zone, but, you know, she wasn't a, a, a showman in any sense. And similarly, I have a half chapter on Gordon Moore, the guy who gives his name to, to Moore's Law, um, who is, because he's still alive, um, uh, almost the opposite of the classic Silicon Valley person. He's not an immigrant. He was born in California. He lives within 10 miles of where he was born. Uh, he's not uh, a, uh, a an extrovert. He's actually quite shy guy. He's not a bully. You know, he's incredibly nice, apparently. Um, uh, he's he's not a, a, a you know, he, he doesn't like publicity, Um He's got tremendous patience. You know, he's not impatient. He likes going fishing. You need patience for fishing. Um, Whereas, you know, the sort of Steve Jobs impatience, you know, get me this here and now. So I'm not sure that that, that the Steve Jobs charisma, that Elizabeth Holmes had charisma for Theranos, that didn't end well. Um, I'm not sure it's necessary. I mean, people like Edison and Marconi and Samuel Morse and... Uh, all these 
18th, 19th century guys, they all had massive egos too, like a lot of the Silicon Valley people of today. Um, but uh, there is, uh, it, it, it doesn't feel to me like it's all that important. To, yes, you've got to be persuasive. You've got to be a bit of a, I, th- I, think, I think what's more important than charisma is persistence. I think what's the, the people who don't give up when things go against them, who keep keep trying, I think they're incredibly important. Samuel Morse, for example, who's basically the inventor of the telegraph, he was an artist. He was a very good portrait painter. Uh, and on a ship on the way back from France to America, he got talking to some people and, and they got talking about the possibility of sending uh, messages along wires. And he just thought this was such a good idea that he decided to pursue it and he did a ton of experiments. But he got to the point where, uh, you know, he was going to put the wires underground from Baltimore to Washington. He got a big grant from Congress to try this, and and the the contractor let him down and basically gave up halfway through the job. And he then had to switch to doing it strung from poles, and he had to raise a bunch more money. And everyone said he was an idiot. And you know, the the the, the determination to keep going that some of these guys had when it looked like they were banging their heads against a brick wall is quite extraordinary. And I think you see that in modern Silicon Valley types as well. And what, what, so this is related to, what, what would you say is the relationship between science and actual technology slash innovation? So you mentioned with Samuel Morris, he was an artist. You mentioned with the Wright brothers, they were ran a bike shop. Uh, it's, not, it's not like the science of aerodynamics led to the invention of the airplane, it's the reverse. And even exactly. computer science, I would say, is, is I mean, there was, of course, Alan Turing writing about, you know, and Claude Shannon writing about information theory before the modern computer, although it was roughly hand in hand, but really computer science took off after the invention of the computer and, and so on. You can say this in every field. I think that's dead right. It's it's the further back you go, of course, the more true it is. So things like, you know, the steam engine gave rise to thermodynamics, as you say, uh, the aeroplane gave rise to aerodynamics, rather than the other way around. So it's not a case of science leading technology in those fields. When you get to computers, you can say it's a bit more this and that. And when you get to biotechnology, you probably say it starts with the science and leads to the technology. But even there, I cite a couple of cases in the book where it's a bit more reciprocal than that. So CRISPR, the new genome editing technology that has developed in the last 10 years and is very uh, efficient and effective and precise, is a technology that looks like it comes straight out of pure university research and is now being applied in industry. Okay, The classical linear model that goes from discovery to invention to application. uh, because it's Berkeley and it's MIT, you know, who are the great um, champions of this technology. But when you look closer, you find, well, Berkeley and MIT got it from the yogurt industry because the yogurt industry was studying why bacteria get sick with viruses and they wanted to understand the bacterial immune system and they picked up a hint from a, a university researcher who was working with a salt industry in Spain uh, to try and uh, understand bacteria, and, and he had found this strange repetitive sequence in bacteria, uh, and he had had a wasn't sure what it was for. And the yogurt guys looked at it and said, "You know what? This is a library of virus sequences that's stored inside the bacteria's genome, and it's there in order to keep a memory of 
the potential infections you might face so that you're ready to go out and attack them when they turn up. Um, and uh, the reason we're industry interested in the yogurt industry because we have a real problem with our bacteria getting sick, so we're looking at it. So it's not clear in that case that you should start the story with discovery. It's almost more that you should start with application, uh, which is bacteriology in the yogurt industry, and you end up with something uh, that is useful in medicine or in agriculture, uh, but, and you've gone back into universities along the way. So I do think that it's a, it's a big mistake to think of science as the one end of the pipe and application as the other end of the pipe. It sometimes that works that way, but not always. Politicians tend to think that way, and they tend to think, I've got to throw money at this end of the pipe and I'll get um, jobs out the other end of the pipe. Uh, and I think they're making a mistake. I think we need to focus just as much on the so-called downstream stuff, the tinkering, the trial and error, the technology stuff, because a lot of that will feed back into the universities as well. You know, the mobile phone doesn't do very much to uh, university research at all. Bits and pieces here and there, but uh, an awful lot of it happened in industry. Yeah, so I think this is extremely appealing because there's, there's this sort of, uh, I don't know if you call it credential bias or what, but uh, this idea that some people are experts and we should leave the technology to the experts and everybody should just stay at home and watch it on TV. When in fact, what we're calling the experts are the scientists and not necessarily the inventors. There's, you make this distinction. And I wonder how far we could push that. Like we saw, we see this with this, with this recent pandemic that, oh, we need to trust the mathematical models of the experts. And it turns out every single one of those models is wrong, but still every step of the way, People say, I think I'm going to leave this to the experts. Like there's, you, yeah. you, you were sort of shut down if you were an uncredentialed skeptic. Yeah. Yeah, I've never been happy with this, uh, th th this way of, of thinking that, that uh, you know, as somebody said to me uh, once, yeah, but you, um, you know, surely you trust this guy's because he's from Harvard or something. And I said, look, if I want arguments from authority, I'll go to the, I'll join the Catholic Church. You know, that's the whole definition of, of the way they operate. Uh, I w if his evidence is good, that's fine. But if he's from um, the, the most second-rate place on the planet and he's got good evidence, that's fine for me too. I, I think, well, first of all, you have to understand that science and technology involves disagreement. You're going to have different people with different ideas about how to interpret data and what the data says, et cetera, et cetera. And they're each going to be riding their hobby horses and, you've, and, and, and what, where you get truth is from the clash between ideas. That's one important thing. But the second thing is, yes, of course, there is, there is such a thing as expertise. I'm not here to say I want my bridge uh, that I drive over built by five-year-olds. You know, I mean, I want... You know, the, the the fact that the bridge doesn't fall down is because someone has expertise in in engineering. Um, but that doesn't mean that there are su there is such a thing as the, an expert on the future. And I think this is the really important distinction that one needs to make. Uh, and this is where we're getting into trouble with the modeling of the epidemic at the moment is where we're we're supposing that there are people who are experts at forecasting. And the, 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 the evidence is that people are terrible at forecasting. And according to Philip Tetlock's work, who looked at 28,000 forecasts from 280 people over 20 years, A, most 
forecasts are not much better than chance. And B, the more expert you are, the worse you are at forecasting because you get um, obsessed with the things you know and you ignore the things you don't know. Um, so a, a mathematical model of an epidemic uh, or of climate change or of uh, economic growth in the next year or two um, uh, is interesting, but we we should never regard it as uh, a, a, a slam dunk. Um, and we've seen this, particularly in the case of, of the epidemic. You know, Professor Neil Ferguson's Imperial College model has recently been published, and it turns out it's not written in very good code. It's a little bit uh, Rube Goldberg, the way it's been put together, uh, and his track record is not good on foot and mouth disease, on mad cow disease, on uh, swine flu, on bird flu. You know, he's over-predicted deaths, um, uh, and by a gigantic margin, by the way, not, not just by a little bit. Um, uh, so, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not saying that makes him an idiot. I'm just saying that... Uh, that we mustn't invest too much faith in forecasts. One of the things I do in the book is quote uh, experts on the future, people like Ernest Rutherford talking about nuclear power or um, uh, Paul Krugman talking about the internet or Paul Allen talking about the iPhone, all of them saying unbelievably wrong things about the near future, you know, getting it badly, badly wrong. And I'm not doing this to humiliate them, it's not only to humiliate them, but just to to to, to draw out how difficult it is to forecast the future in these complex systems we're dealing with. So it seems like this starts to build a profile, though, of what is a good innovator. So someone with uh, a lot of ability to to persist, someone who is going to share ideas with a large community of people, so they get ideas back from reciprocity. Someone who has um, uh, uh, you know, is able to do trial and error with with and manage the risk and manage the downside and and be persistent about it. Uh, someone who maybe is not credentialed, so they're so focused on one lane. Perhaps the opposite of that, they have some breadth. So with the Wright brothers, they knew about how bicycles have forward motion, and they're able to apply some of those principles. And you know, and then they studied birds, which is a different category, and they're able to combine some of those ideas into an airplane, uh, you know, it seems like an, an ability to, to tinker, so to sort of think out loud and, and tinker. So, so for instance, you could imagine uh, someone might not know anything about how to make an electric car, but if they see an electric bike and they have a hammer, maybe they could say, well, what if I just take two bikes, put them together and I have two seats and now I and put a top over it and now I have a car, even though I have no credentials about how to make you know, an, an automobile. Uh, so you could see like tinkering is some sort of skill that, that is related to innovation. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the early history of the motor car is a very nice example of this, where lots of different people are trying lots of things. And and the, the first examples of the new technology, the motor car, uh, looked like the last examples of the old technology. Um, uh, they looked like a, a steam engine, uh, you know, a, a railway locomotive, has met a horse carriage round the back of a bicycle shed and had illicit relations <laughs> and produced a sort of weird hybrid. And it's only later that, uh, I think it's, um, it's Daimler, um, really, who says, 
no, you know what? We should lower the center, center of gravity. We need smaller wheels. We, you know, that the shape of the car starts to emerge, uh, as it were. And it's fantastically gradual. And it's, it, it's a story which involves lots of different people, um, some of which came up with some of the ideas and some who came up with the other ideas, and they all get put together. Um, I mean, even the Wright brothers, who you and I have praised uh, in the last few minutes, um, it turns out that their method of steering wasn't as good as someone else's. And they got into a patent battle with this guy, but um, uh, he, the other guy was right. I can't remember who he was, you know, but he'd, he'd had a better idea for how to do things. So to be open, to, it, tinkering is exactly the right word. I think the French have a word for this, which is bricolage. And it, it's just quite a lovely word because it captures the, the concept of just constantly fiddling till you get it right. Yeah, and, I, and again, I think it's it's a, a very attractive concept because it, it brings to mind like, oh, I don't need a PhD in you know physics and rocket science in order to create a rocket. So you have Elon Musk, of course, shares lots of ideas and brings on lots of physicists and rocket scientists, but he himself is more of a tinkerer and, and thinks out loud and and you know is able to sort of manage manage the innovation as opposed to himself be an expert down one lane. Well, I think Elon Musk, like Edison, is quite a good example of something. I don't think Elon Musk would claim to be an inventor, but he is certainly an innovator. Um, uh, and also, he's not afraid of being wrong. I mean, I'm actually very critical in the book of his idea about hyperloops because right. um, I think uh, you know, the basic physics shows that they are always going to be more expensive than railways, and he's just reinventing a, a sort of bus um, network underground which is you know going to be very expensive etc I, I just can't see how they're uh, and i think most of the people promoting it are sort of hyping it without thinking through the practicalities um uh, might be wrong I, I will sound just like one of those people i criticize <laughs> if i am um but but the point is he's rolling the dice he's swinging and missing and sometimes he's hitting and uh, and he's also by the way getting another uh, thing right which is that uh, it's not just good enough to make a, a better car, an electric car. You've got to make it sexy. And, you know, his idea that you start by making it a really attractive car. I mean, my my friends who've got Teslas, they're, they're crashing bores on the subject. They say, come and have a ride in my Teslas and I'll show you how <laughs> fast it goes and how many buttons it's got. And till you, till you eventually say, look, I've been in Tesla before. I don't need, you know. But they're, they're evangelists in this extraordinary way. Do you remember how Mac people were the same? You know, computer, yes. Apple people were the same 20, 30 years ago. You know, oh, you know, look at the color of it. Look, don't you think it's so beautiful compared with your clunky machine? And, you know, the, the sort of IBM and people had forgotten that there was a good idea to make some of these things beautiful as well. <laughs> well, you know, and um, all this is related to, again, how, how one becomes an innovator as well as how innovation exists. And, you know, one kind of, one argument, which I kind of get into probably too frequently, particularly on Twitter, where all these arguments seem to take place, is the role between, of government and innovation. And yeah. so, for instance, if I say, oh, innovation comes from private industry, I'll usually be stumped with something like, well, the internet came out of DARPA, you know, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency funded by the U.S. government, which was related to NASA and weaponry. And GPS also came out of the government. And, you know, all these things that we then built billions of other innovations on top of. 
And you address this in the book and in ways that I didn't really know the history of. So particularly like, you know, TCP IP and the internet. Yeah, I mean, these are, sure, there's a lot of government involvement in developing these in the first place, but but not all of them. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff involved in the internet that comes out of the private sector. Uh, some comes out of the government, some comes out of the private sector. And we're making the mistake if we play, if we credit the government with the original idea and therefore say that it deserves all the credit for everything that followed, of forgetting how much innovation has to follow the invention. You know, just like Edison's great achievement was not to invent the light bulb, it was to turn the light bulb into something that was absolutely reliable, um, that could would stay shining for hours and hours on end, which none of the first light bulbs would do. Um, uh, there's a story I tell in the book, which Charles Townes, the inventor of the laser, was fond of, of telling, which is a, a beaver and a rabbit standing in front of the Hoover Dam. And the beaver is saying to the rabbit, no, I didn't build it, but it's based on an idea of mine. And I feel that the people who are saying uh, that the, the internet is based on what DARPA did inside uh, there are basically saying that. They're the beaver claiming credit for the Hoover Dam. Um, an enormous amount has gone into developing the internet from those original ideas. And in fact, a lot of the smart stuff that uh, happened uh, in the early days of the internet uh, came about as a result of people leaving DARPA and working in private industry. Um, so uh, I don't, I, th I think it elevates some, and, and, you know, you can go back and say the, um, the government invented uh, the original idea of a network, um, but then you go back further still and you find that all the technologies involved in that network were all from private industry, you know. So where do you start? Where's the chicken and where's the egg? Back to that issue. Right, and so... Um before, uh, well, we have a, a few more minutes left, and I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, the evolution of everything, your, your book before this one, and The Rational Optimist. And again, they're all connected. I feel they're, they're all about innovation, really, and, and you know, society's progress in innovative periods. I don't, I, I'm, I'm unsure if you've read um, Homo Deus by uh, Yuval Harari, and there's an, an interesting relationship between that book and the evolution of everything, which is he sort of talks about how society itself went from theism, this trust, this, this, this complete trust in a higher power to humanism, you know, a trust in humans, to uh, dataism. So for, for instance, doctors or medicine, we went from going to our priest and, oh, I must have done something wrong because now I have a rash, to right. going to a, a doctor who says, take two aspirin, to dataism, I need my genome sequenced, I need a blood work, and then I get a diagnosis. And that, that corresponds with the evolution of everything. And, uh, you know, you could apply that to industries you don't even discuss in the evolution of everything. And, and that's when you start coming up with things like, like Bitcoin and so on as being maybe a possible evolution of, of currency. But uh, I, I was just curious if you had made that connection or if you had seen Harari's work. Actually, that's a very interesting point. I mean, I read Sapiens, but I haven't, ashamed to say, I haven't read Homo Deus. Um, I've looked at it, but I haven't, haven't read it properly. But it's, it's, it's a nice point. I mean, I make the, the point in evolution of everything that, that God himself evolves. I mean, he starts out as just a sort of slightly um, uh, bad-tempered um, uh, human being who sits on a mountain throwing thunderbolts and raping people, you know, Zeus and so on. And, and then he gradually becomes a sort of jealous, monotheistic um, uh, individual, um, but slight, but somewhat uh, supernatural. 
uh, and then he just dissolves into a sort of, uh, you know, moral presence. At some stage, he goes from being a bad guy to being a good guy, do you notice? You know, I mean, nobody thinks of Zeus as particularly moral, you know, but by the time you get to, uh, uh, and Jehovah's pretty beastly too. He's, he's throwing, he's uh, punishing people, um, drowning everybody and so on. <laughs> uh, but but by the time you get to, to today, you know, we're, we're told God is, isn't a man with a long white beard. He's just a sort of general idea and, and he's a sort of general tendency towards being mor- uh, moral and ethical. Uh, you know, so it's a very nice case of evolution. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and um, uh, and you see competition uh, between various versions of God. I mean, uh, in in my book, I described the 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 the, 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 the sort of promising candidates for the next big global religion in first century Rome. Um, uh, the cult of Apollonius looks like an absolute winner, and it's got senators backing it and it's got this charismatic guy and lots of people believe in it uh, and there's a rival cult of a uh, you know a Jewish figure but nobody would bet on that but in fact that was the one that won and the other one didn't and 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 again it's almost like this is um you know the evolution of everything is almost about innovation of ideas themselves and how they evolve through time how the how the idea of religion and faith and so on evolved over time you know and and all of this, all of this dates back to the rational optimist, which basically, how if I were to summarize it in one sentence, is that the, you know, the rising density density of people and the ability to communicate being easier and easier. Like you're in England right now, I'm in the U.S. We're able to have this conversation over Zoom, a video conversation. This allows for this uh, density of ideas, which creates new ideas and then innovation. And so on. I wonder if, if at any point, and you document in every area how we should be optimistic when there's this almost evolutionary tendency to be fatalistic and mm-hmm. to say, you know, we always kind of say the world's about to to end, or there's too much population, or you know, the the world's going to heat up in the next ten years and everyone's going to starve and drown and whatever. But that, you know, innovation trumps all of that, and and that that's a reason to be optimistic. Right now, we're in the middle of this somewhat depressing societal time where, you know, a lot of people are in lockdown or fear, either correctly or incorrectly, who, who knows. Um, but do you ever see that kind of optimism? Uh, I guess I'm asking for myself. Is there reasons to not be optimistic? <laughs> well, I wrote The Rational Optimist 10 years ago. And I've been traveling around the world ever since talking about rational optimism. People are very interested in getting me to come and talk about things. So every year I've given them, you know, either one or lots of talks uh, about this. And every year somebody has stuck up their hand in the audience at the end and said, you can't still be optimistic. Look at what's happening this year. Whether it was the war in Ukraine or the war in Syria or the Euro crisis or uh, the Ebola pandemic, you know, there's always been some reason why people say, uh, you know, surely not. I mean, this must give you second thoughts. So at the moment, it's the uh, uh, COVID pandemic that people are using as that. And yes, it's a bad setback. And in The Rational Optimist, I said there will be setbacks in this century. It won't be plain sailing. Um, and one of them might be pandemic flu, is the phrase I used. Well, this isn't pandemic flu, but it's very similar in some ways. Um, uh, uh, so... Um, 
yeah, this is not good news. It's it's horrible for the people who are dying as a result of it. It's horrible for the people who are losing their jobs as a result of it, for the people who are suffering mental anguish because of lockdown, etc. But will we get through it? And will it have killed uh, less than 1% of the world population by the time it's finished? Um, I reckon so. Uh, will technology be the answer? Yep. It'll be either vaccines or it'll be antivirals or it'll be apps. You know, it might be a digital solution this time that gets us that, uh, to a way that, that we can do it. It's possible that we've so messed up society with these lockdowns that we can't put it back together and we get a, a revolution followed by a dictatorship because we've all fallen in love with authoritarian rules that tell us we can't go out of our houses without a permit. Um, uh, and we, you know, we all turn into a sort of Stalinist world and, and it gets worse and worse. So I can't rule out that this is the beginning of catastrophe, but I think it's most likely that it isn't. I, I mentioned 1% of the world population dying and I don't think it's going to be nearly that bad. But put that in context. Uh, in, you know, in previous plagues, we've talked about 30, 40% of the world, of the population of a continent like Europe dying in the Black Death and so on. Uh, we're not facing something that bad. We can survive it. We will find as a result of it that there are innovations coming along to change the way we do things that will in themselves have nothing to do with medicine, but will be interesting. One of them is virtual meetings. You know, we've, we've suddenly reached a critical mass of people who are prepared to use Zoom and similar technologies. That's quite exciting in some ways. Uh, and so we will be able to do better things after it. And... We've seen care and compassion on a on a big scale in this in this crisis too, right? And this this leads to the point that you've made in in all three books is that one thing that's evolved is our leisure time. So if we're doing a Zoom meeting as opposed to flying on a plane to meet, it increases leisure time ever more. So there's there's there is various positives out of what's happening. Although it's 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 been striking to me how easily people have surrendered uh, some degree of civil rights supposedly for a good cause, and let's even yep. assume it's a good cause, it still makes me question why it was so easy for people to surrender those rights rather than just simply decide on their own to, to, to not go outside. They needed to be told and, and so on. I do agree with that, yeah. And so, so I guess uh, the final question is, let's say someone's listening to this and they're thinking, you know, I like to tinker with things, and, but I never got a, an MD slash PhD slash law degree I guess I'm not an expert, or but but now there's some hope that maybe I can be an innovator. What's what are the next few steps someone like that can can take to improve their ability to to innovate? And again, it doesn't have to be a scientific innovation; it could be an artistic one or or a, a literary one. Who knows? Well, I want to be a little careful before prescribing it because one of my arguments is that it's a surprisingly sort of messy process, and it would be a mistake to think that there's one way of doing it. Um, uh, and also, I have to bear in mind that I'm not much of an innovator myself. I've not invented anything. Uh, unless but you're you an innovator it. of ideas. I think these books... I, uh, yes, that's true. Um, we'll, we'll go along with that. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think it, it's back to um, uh, understand the importance of sharing your ideas with other people. Don't try and keep it to yourself. Uh, share ideas, do lots of experiments, uh, trial and error, be open to, to being wrong about something, um, be ready for serendipity, be ready 
to decide that instead of building a new washing machine, you're actually building a new space rocket or vice versa, uh, because actually that quite often happens. You set out to invent one thing and you invent another. Um, those are the kinds of lessons that I would, I would teach if I was teaching a class on innovation, which God forbid. <laughs> and, then, and then finally, I guess, are you, this is a difficult question. This is more like a therapy question. <laughs> are you happy with your life? So, and what I mean is you've had huge success in these books and people really respect your ideas and you've reached a certain level where these ideas are going to live and these books will live for, for a long time and, and be well-respected. I'm, I'm assuming, I'm forecasting now. And uh, Great, uh, that's, that's great news. <laughs> I, I, I may or may not have a good track record, who knows. But uh, are, you, like, are you satisfied with where you are or, or do, you, are you, do you find yourself always striving for more? This is, this is a different shift in the podcast, but are you, do you find yourself often striving for more? Like what's the, what's the next book that's going to keep me on top? What's the next idea that are going to have people writing about me? Or do you feel satisfied with where you are in in your career oh i'm definitely striving for the next achievement i'm constantly telling myself i should have achieved more than i have why did i waste time doing that instead of this um how come i'm not uh, uh, prime minister or president um you know i mean uh, that uh, sorry that sounds uh, um, ridiculous, but uh, uh, my, not know, really. My my point is, one does one does compare oneself against uh, against people who've achieved even more, rather than against people who've achieved yet less. You, you're right. I've achieved some quite satisfying and interesting things in life, but I'd love to achieve even more. Um, I'm 62, so there's not a lot of time left. But I'm going to enjoy my. You're only on the planet once. Do as much as you can while you're here. But but at what point do you ever take a step back and say, you know what? this is really good right now and I could, maybe I'll spend more time on gardening. Yeah, no, no. Oh, I do quite a lot of that. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not someone who works every hour that God gave. I, I, I know how to enjoy myself. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, really, it's such a pleasure having you on the podcast. I cannot even tell you what an influence, uh, the rational optimist, the evolution of everything. And now, of course, how innovation works, which I've read and reread twice since I got the PDF about five days ago. Wow. And I'm looking forward to reading the, the final hardcover once I get it. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the, on the podcast. You've been a, a huge influence on me and, um, and always so smart to, to, to read your, your books. I feel like my IQ increases when I, when, I, when I borrow from your ideas. Well, thank you very, very much. It's really nice to have been on the podcast. I'm sorry it's taken so long to get on. No, 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 no. It's, I, was, I was just kidding with that before. It's, it's all good. I'm going to dash off the podcast because I'm giving a presentation in four minutes. So I'm go, gonna... go for it. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll talk again. So thank you very much. Great. All the best. Thank you. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.